Hello, and welcome to the ASHI podcast. My name is Gonzalo Berman, and I serve as the Editor-in-Chief of Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology. With the ASHI podcast, we hope to share content that is relevant, novel, thought-provoking, and consistent with the diversity of perspectives that we seek with ASHI. A special thanks goes out to the editorial team and, of course, to Shea for their ongoing support. We hope you will enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Antimicrobial Stewardship and Healthcare Epidemiology Podcast. We have two very special guests today. Our guests today are Dr. Erica Shinoy and Dr. Weston Branch Elliman, who will be conversing with us on a series of three articles recently published in ASHI. These are entitled, the first article, Automating Surveillance for Healthcare-Associated Infections, Rationale and Current Realities. The second article is Leveraging Electronic Data to Expand Infection Detection Beyond Traditional Settings and Definitions. And the third article is The Future of Automated Infection Detection, Innovation to Transform Practice. For all our readers and listeners, all three articles are available on the ASHI website for free for readers across the globe. I'm here with Dr. Priya Nori. Take it away, Dr. Nori. Thank you, Gonzalo. So it is my distinct pleasure to introduce our guests in detail. So first we have Dr. Erica Shinoy. She is Chief of Infection Control at the Mass General Brigham Healthcare System, a large integrated healthcare system with approximately 80,000 employees. In this role, she's responsible for the development, implementation of infection control strategies, policies, and measurement across the system. She's an associate professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and is an infectious diseases physician at MGH. Her research has evaluated the clinical, operational, and economic impact of infection control strategies and prevention of healthcare-associated infections through clinical studies and mathematical modeling and use of electronic health records for surveillance, applied machine learning techniques, as well as other cutting edge topics. She is principal investigator of the CDC-funded National Infection Prevention Control and Improving Patient Safety in the United States Cooperative Agreement focused on innovation in IPC education and clinical decision support. We are also joined by Dr. Weston Branch Elliman, who is Associate Chief of Staff for Scientific Affairs at the VA National Artificial Intelligence Institute and an Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's an established clinician investigator and VA research PI at the VA Boston Healthcare System with expertise in dissemination and implementation science, epidemiology, policy evaluation, leveraging VA databases to support automated surveillance activities, and many other things. She's also associate editor of our companion journal, Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, and frequent contributor, along with Dr. Shinoy, to ASHI. Welcome to you both. Thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, Eric and Weston, we're honored to chat with you today for the podcast. So let's start with a very broad, kind of open-ended question here. How and when did you both meet and discover your overlapping research interests and passions? Do you consider yourselves collaborators, mentor, mentee, or all of the above? Well, maybe I'll start because I'm going to blame you, Gonzalo, for this part. So you had reached out after I'd given a short talk at ICPIC a few years ago now about turning that talk into a potential paper. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, yeah, this is a big undertaking and I thought, I've been reading a lot of Weston Branch Element. I didn't know Weston. So I cold emailed her and I said, would you be interested in working with me on this project? Because I had admired her work. And we really got really interested in it and have become both fast colleagues and friends. And I would consider it 
like bi-directional mentee mentor. Like sometimes I think I'm mentoring, sometimes she's mentoring me and it's been working out great. I'll see what Weston thinks about how that all evolved. I totally agree. It's been a great partnership and I would probably put it in the realm of partnership. And I think all partnerships involve both mentoring and menteeing. And so it's been great to get to know Erica and to be able to work with her on this and a variety of projects. Thank you so much for collaborating together and for you know working with us at Ashi. And thank you, Erica, for not immediately putting my email into the dustbin of emails, which is quite a common occurrence. So let's follow up on that. Tell us how you developed the idea for the bundle of three articles you contributed to Ashi. What were existing gaps that you discussed and how did you seek to address these? Well, Weston, you want to take that one? Because we got started in one direction and then kept going. Yeah, I think it's true. It's sort of metastasized. And I think this was something both born during the pandemic and of the pandemic. And I guess we realized that there were several important questions we wanted to address. First and foremost, we wanted to describe where things stand today, and that's sort of the focus of the first article. Then we really wanted to get into the weeds about the realities and the challenges of moving forward. We also wanted to highlight the potential for future innovations to advance the field of healthcare epidemiology and surveillance. I also think we really wanted to demonstrate that we are optimistic for the future of electronic surveillance, but we also really have to be realistic. Many of the challenges that we face aren't going away, and those are discussed in great detail in the second piece. So in the second piece, we sort of tried to walk the line between optimism and pragmatism. And as we see these technologies increasingly rolled out, it's important that we keep in mind that just like the electronic health record, things could get better, things could get worse, or they could stay about the same. And any of these are possibilities. We need to be careful that we don't paint too rosy a picture and have our eyes open about the challenges. All the time, people come to me with sort of pitches and suggestions, and it's really important to understand the EHR and both its potential and its limitations as we think about moving forward. And then in the third one, we sort of tried to project with the future, what the opportunities are, what it could be. And that's where we sort of get into our more optimistic role about how these technologies can really benefit us in the future. Great. Thank you for that comprehensive overview of your three pieces, Dr. Branch Elman. To kind of expand on that a little bit more for the benefit of our readers, can you list like maybe one or two take-home points from each one of your articles? Yeah, I can start with the first paper. That's the current state uh, reality. And I would say that the reality, and we focus mostly on NHSN surveillance or the National Healthcare Safety Network surveillance that all of our readers are probably very familiar with, is that it's a beast. There's no getting around it. You know, even with very standardized definitions, the wide availability of commercial software systems designed to assist in surveillance it is resource intensive to do this. It's resource intensive even for the most well-resourced institutions. And by that, I mean, from start to finish, you actually never finish, I should say that. There's no finish here. You'll start with the validation process when you're bringing on a new surveillance module. There will be maintenance that goes on over time, refining your surveillance techniques. And it may be that it shifts some of the work from the IP to the informatics, some of it. But I think my experience at least has been being very involved in the weeds of this, that the time savings is really not realized, but you can use the surveillance techniques to become more efficient. 
and potentially allow you to do more expanded surveillance. And we get into that sort of in the second paper. But I really do want to emphasize that it's not a one and done workflow. You have to be basically maintaining it, stewarding it, and recognizing that the resources that are required are real. And in the world that we live in, this is a kind of a constant thing that we're working on in terms of ensuring that we have the resources to do the work that we need to do. Maybe I'll turn it to Weston to see how we transition in the second paper to after we've established the basics around NHSN surveillance, maybe using some of those same tools to expand beyond NHSN surveillance. Absolutely. And here I'm going to put in a plug for implementation science. So, you know, traditionally we talk in clinical research about efficacy and effectiveness. And implementation science really focuses on different outcomes. And these early implementation outcomes are things like feasibility and acceptability. And later implementation outcomes are things about sustainability. And the second paper really focuses on some of those early implementation outcomes like feasibility and acceptability of expansion. And I also think it's really important that we think not just about the early implementation outcomes, but as Erica referenced, some of the later implementation outcomes like sustainability. And sustainability of all of these systems is going to require maintenance. And that's not something we have heard discussed a lot and something that we really wanted to highlight. Some of the challenges of once you get these things going, keeping them going. And as we move towards more informatics-focused systems, we're going to recognize that they're going to need ongoing support and updates as systems and evidence evolves. And, you know, we cannot view our systems as static because the systems themselves are not static, they're dynamic. And dynamic systems need dynamic solutions. And that means that it's never going to be set it and forget it. We're going to have to be constantly reevaluating and re-updating these things. And we're going to need to plan for resources in order to do that. And so, you know, I think there's sort of this hope that we program something and then we let it go. And it's not going to be like that. It's going to be we program something, we reevaluate it, and then we update it as things change. And so as we think to the future and the future of electronic surveillance and automated systems, we need to think about the resources that are going to be acquired up front and plan for that. I unfortunately don't see a lot of planning for that. I see more the attitude that we're going to be in a situation where we plug it and then forget about it. And availability and cost of IT resources are going to be a major limitation that needs to be factored into decision making as we decide where, when, and how to move towards more electronic solutions. And so the other thing I wanted to highlight is that the reality is that despite all of the hype, there are very few real-world examples of advanced technologies implemented into clinical practice to support clinical care decisions, and the vast majority of them are in radiology. So our third paper really focuses on the future and what the future could look like. But we also need to recognize where we are and sort of the realities of some of the data and the realities of the technology. Radiology is a relatively good target for AI-focused interventions because once the image is captured, it's static and it doesn't change. But most real-world databases aren't like that. They're constantly changing. They're constantly being updated, whether it be note templates, residents coming in from different places who use different documentation patterns. All of these things are constantly changing. And that means that as we create these electronic tools, those are also going to have to be constantly changed. Other challenges are that data are missing in non-random ways, and those non-random missing data contributes to algorithmic bias. And unfortunately, a reality is that 
the data are most likely to be missing in those patients with the most limited access and interaction with healthcare. In other words, the people who we would hope to benefit the most from some of these electronic innovations are those who are most likely to be subject to algorithmic bias challenges. Other barriers are that medical notes are full of repetition, jargon, and negation. This is something we dive into in the second paper. And all of these realities about the repetition, I think everybody knows about copying notes forward. When I was in medical school, the cardiology attending I work with made jokes about congestive chart failure, and the EHR has only contributed to congestive chart failure. And all of these things that make tasks that appear to be simple, in fact, much more complicated when you try to come at them from an informatics perspective. And the reality is that no matter how good the technology is, you can't get past the limitations of the underlying data. That's why I think building up our healthcare data infrastructure is so critical to achieving any true advancements in clinical care. And regardless of how many headlines we see about AI taking our jobs, it's important to remember that what AI is really good at is reading. And it can only read what we have documented. And if the data are not collected, AI cannot read or interpret it. And if we write it 10 times, AI is going to read it 10 times and think it's really important. And so I know there's talk of an AI revolution that's making lots of people nervous, particularly in infectious diseases. But it's really important to remember that what AI is good at is reading. And so they're reading what we write. And this means that AI inherently needs a person behind it to collect that data so it can read it and leverage it. And so given our history of long notes, uh, I think this is a good sign for the future of infectious diseases physicians because of our reputation of being not exactly pithy. If I may follow up on that, you're talking about the importance of the human component still despite the AI, correct? Correct. And you see an important role still for human beings in data surveillance and interpretation. It can't just be automated. Is that what you're saying? I think the reality is we're never going to get a place where this is fully automated. You know, I think we're hopefully going to get a place where we have some automated solutions that make our lives a little bit easier. But the automated solutions are only ever going to be as good as the data collected by a person. Correct. You did mention also in your comments there about long notes, right? Yes. I think yes, in ID, we're not exactly pithy. You know, we start when the person was in utero and then go all the way to, you know, their great great grandmother. That's sort of the way we do things in ID. We might need uh, to turn things up ourselves in ID too. Yes. Absolutely. And I, and I was going to say, and then our notes get copy and chart forwarded because they're so long and we do a great social history. I just want to make one comment about the human part of this, which is if you just heard what Weston said, it sounded kind of down on the future, but I know Weston is very optimistic about it. And it also raises the point of choosing the right question to address. And so that's where I think, you know, we have limited resources. This is not going to be easy. So part of the role of the epidemiologist and others who are involved in this is picking the right, the really important questions, the really important tasks, and focusing our work on that and making sure that it's worth the effort that we're going to put in to address it using one of these technologies. And so I think we spend considerable time thinking about what's the most important question, what's the target here, and spending the time up front to focus that so that we're not diverting resources in a way that's not the most useful. Absolutely. And I don't mean to be too negative. I just think a lot of times it appears that these technologies are going to be sort of magical solutions to our problems. And 
They're not. There are a lot of challenges and the challenges are challenges that won't go away. And we need to think through them and have our eyes open as we develop our tools and our technologies. Well, thank you both for conveying to our readers just, uh, you know, your world of experience, wealth of experience and perspectives on coming technology. So one term I'd like to dissect a little bit that you mentioned a lot is the learning healthcare system. You referred to this a couple of times in your series. Can you tell us what you mean by that? And how does automated infection surveillance support this particular model? So the concept of the learning healthcare system, and it's been pretty widely promoted by the AHRQ, is that data generated as part of clinical care can be collected and then analyzed to provide new and better evidence that can in turn be rapidly integrated to improve clinical care as part of a continuous quality improvement cycle. And inherent to the concept of the learning healthcare system is that we are generating all of this data and with advancements in informatics and analytics capabilities, we can begin to achieve real improvements in bedside clinical care. And so in the specific case of automated surveillance, in an ideal world, we would leverage data generated in close to real time to inform the effectiveness and necessity of various infection prevention interventions. And then ideally also to identify when there are problems and when resources need to be deployed to address it. And then as more data are collected, hopefully we could reevaluate our systems and our interventions and then use that to learn if our current interventions are sufficient or if they need to be adapted, increased, or discontinued. Another example that I'm really excited about that I'm just going to tease right now on the podcast is that we have been working on a model with rolling risk of severe COVID-19. And this sort of gets back to the concept of dynamic sustainability and dynamic change in systems. So what we have done is we've used machine learning as well as a 30-day rolling risk of severe disease to develop individualized risk prediction models to determine who remains at high risk of severe COVID-19 and to put that information into the hands of providers to increase uptake of interventions to reduce severe disease like Paxlovid. And so that is sort of a realization of the learning healthcare system where instead of taking data from early in the pandemic that is frankly no longer relevant today. We're using data that's generated now based on current levels of immunity, vaccination, prior infection to help inform how we should provide clinical care now. And so that's really sort of the concept saying, Weston, of the learning healthcare system. What? What you're saying, Weston, sorry to interrupt, is that you're taking elements from the learning healthcare system and applying them to patients at the individual level such that you have precision medicine or an element of precision medicine. The idea is an element of precision medicine and also leveraging all of this electronic data and recognizing that the systems are changing, right? The systems exist as part of an overall dynamic system and dynamic change. And so the pandemic is a good example of this because we started out with no immunity. And I don't know if ever in our lifetime, we've sort of gone from zero to 60 in terms of no immunity, changes in medical countermeasures, changes in vaccine availability. And so you can really see the change occurring in real time. But the reality is this happens for all kinds of different medical interventions. It just happens more slowly. And so it can be a bit harder to see. A very interesting response. I'd like to explore something that was in your second article, if we could, please. You focus on the second article on expanding infection detection beyond traditional settings like arthroscopies, derm biopsies, dental infections, transfusion events, et cetera, et cetera. Why is this important if we're going to keep up with the changing landscape of healthcare? 
So I think, you know, traditionally, lots of infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship resources have been focused on inpatient settings. But over the past couple decades, due to a variety of factors, availability of medical treatments outside the hospital, changing reimbursement and changing sort of incentives, as well as advancements in technology and minimally invasive procedures, we've seen a shift from lots of inpatient care to more and more outpatient care. And so increasingly, we have patients who are receiving care on the outpatient setting, and outpatient care is a much larger chunk of the healthcare pie than inpatients. We focus most of our efforts in the inpatient setting. And there are justifications for that. Inpatients have more lines. They're obviously in the ICU. They're inherently a higher risk group for HAIs. But increasingly, that higher risk is offset by the sheer volume that is occurring in outpatient settings. And so we need solutions for how we're going to begin to take our vast knowledge of infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship and translate that into true benefits for all patients, not just patients who are in the hospital. And so that creates additional challenges with electronic systems because in the inpatient setting, events are more common and inherently it's easier to develop an algorithm to detect something that's more common than something that's more rare. And so we're sort of stuck with trying to strike a balance between the sheer volume of patients getting outpatient care and the lower underlying risk of those patients. I think the other piece is like, this is not going away. The trend towards care delivered outside of acute care settings is going to happen. It's going to continue to happen. You see the growth of hospital at home, for example. This has been kind of a big thing during the pandemic and continues to be experimented with. Now, those are patients who are kind of in some ways similar to inpatients and some of the interventions that are being given to them, and yet they're in a surveillance kind of free zone in some ways. And so I think that what the real challenge here is trying to figure out in a setting where we have admittedly much less infection prevention on the ground, because acute care is where most of our resources are focused, can we leverage information technology and some of these technologies to actually amplify and allow us to do surveillance in a place that just would be physically impossible to do given the sheer volume and the kind of disparate locations where care is being delivered. So Erica, staying on this topic a little bit, in your third article, that's really where you set us up for all these technologies that are coming down the pipeline. So this can seem daunting to folks. So let's say one of our readers is an infection preventionist somewhere in a resource-limited setting, what are a couple of things that IPs can do in their day-to-day practice to embrace and harness these new technologies, especially these AI-driven chatbots, et cetera? What are some like practical tips? Yeah. So, I mean, this isn't something one does alone. This is a team thing. And even if you look at what Weston and I have been involved in, we are involved in pretty large teams with disparate sorts of backgrounds and expertise. And so I think from the IP side, I think education about this work and then also finding partnerships. You know, I was lucky enough about trying to think probably seven years or so ago to be introduced to a graduate student at MIT across the river who was interested in infections. And that relationship over years has grown through various other graduate students. I think when you partner with experts in machine learning or AI, they are really eager to find a target. 
I feel like we in infection prevention know what those targets are, know what we need help with. And those can be really great relationships to establish. So if you're an IP and there's a local university, you could be thinking about reaching out to them and talking about potentially collaborating. I would say that these collaborations are not built in a day. There are lots of challenges related to sharing data and those sorts of details that can be very daunting. But I think the first step is to You could read the three papers, see if anything there resonates with you, and then reach out to local universities or other groups that may be interested in partnering. Or certainly you could reach out to us. I I know we'd be happy to hear from groups that are interested in, in collaborating as well. What I'm hearing is collaborations, be curious and reach out to others and even to you too for ideas back in maybe future directions. So with that, as we wrap up our interviews here, I'd like to explore a so we're kind of parting concepts for you. What do you think are the take-home messages from this podcast and from your three bundled articles for our readers and listeners? What are the three things that you'd like to highlight with the current state of automated surveillance, certainly the use of big data and infection prevention and future steps? Weston, you want to go first, then I'll chime in. Sure. So I think the key things that I would highlight are One, I think we need to be clear-eyed and open-eyed about what informatics can and cannot do for us and think clearly to make sure we have the right solution to the right problem. From implementation science, we know that a lot of interventions fail because we build a tool, but the tool is not the right tool for the problem. And so what does that mean? As Erica just highlighted, it means working as part of a team with the informaticists, with IPs, with hospital administrators, and with end users who are actually going to be using these tools to make sure we build them correctly from the ground up. And so I think thinking pre-implementation and thinking through the problems is going to be critical. And I think that's where we have a huge role because I think a lot of times these tools are built without engagement of the people who are actually using them and without the people on the ground who actually know what the problems are. And if we want to realize these advancements, we're going to have to put those pieces together. And I think the other thing we need to be very clear-eyed is about the limitations of the data themselves and the limitations of the EHR and what we can do to improve those. And so I think focusing on developing data infrastructure and sustainable and future-proof databases is going to be critical for achieving these benefits. But I think one of the stories that we tell in part of the, that's kind of a theme throughout the papers, is the story of how the HIV epidemic was initially identified. And I think a lot of people don't know that it was identified by basically an administrator within the federal government who got a series of requests from across the United States for pentamidine in young men. And this one individual just happened to notice that this is a very rare occurrence and she reported up the chain and they realized we had a huge epidemic on our hands. And my hope is that in the future, we can do better than that. And we can use our electronic data tools to and train them to identify outlier situations before they get to the point where we needed cases in LA and cases in New York and one lucky individual who got all the information to identify the problem. And ultimately, if we can identify problems earlier, we can save a lot of lives. I would just add that this can all seem probably very abstract in some ways. And also once you say see a product like a publication that describes one of these interventions, usually it's often these are, you know, pilots, we tried this, this happened, that it can seem like 
it all worked out perfectly and it was, you know, easy to do. None of this is easy. That said, you know, there is so much possibility out there to really use, number one, the skills that are really inherent in infection prevention, the curiosity that's there. And just, again, what Weston said about choosing the right target and thinking about your end user upfront, not as an afterthought, because that is just so critical. So I think the future in all of this is very bright. We just have to make sure we don't get distracted by a lot of shiny objects that might take us in one direction versus another. And I think we're going to really, really see a huge change and exciting era in epidemiology in the next, you know, 10 years or so. If we were to regroup in 10 years, hopefully we'll see some real improvements and exciting insights. And that's part of science. We don't know what we're going to find when we really get into this. So Eric and Weston, does that mean you're committing to a follow-up publication for us in 10 years from now, a decade in review? I think if you're talking 10 years, you know, I I think our schedule is probably still open for 10 years, but, you know, call us in five, let us know. As a follow-up to that, I just want to say, you know, if we do this right, informatics and AI can help our jobs and make our jobs better. I see it as something that's going to facilitate our work. It's not going to completely replace our work or replace our role. And I think that's a really important message because I think there's a lot of anxiety around what this is going to do. Is this going to take my job? And I think if we do this right, it's not going to take your job. It's going to make your job easier. It's going to show us insights that we didn't see before. And it's really going to improve clinical care. Just to point out the really famous example that you provided in your publications, that was a human being that detected those signals and then put all those things together. Granted, this was like 40 years ago or something, but nevertheless, it takes an astute human being. Well, and and that's true. We have another example in there that was also sort of a serendipitous individual level event. It's the story of how the hepatitis C outbreak associated with the Brooklyn endoscopy clinics was discovered. And a whole series of chance events had to line up exactly right in order for one person to get the relevant information to identify the problem. And it does, I have to say, those sort of things raise the hair on my necks of all of the things that we're missing. If we knew that it took one person being on call at three hospitals on the same weekend and identifying patients he had taken care of earlier in that week and who got acute hepatitis C, which is a relatively rare event, all of those things had to happen in order for that outbreak to be identified. How often do things happen where the same doctor wasn't on call at all three hospitals? How often is it that we don't see a lot of acute hepatitis C and so those cases go undetected? So my hope is that a lot of these technologies can be used to improve upon where we are now and that the tools can see data and see patterns that we can't currently see, partially because no human is looking across all of these different data sets and no human could look across all these different data sets. And this gets back to what AI and what these technologies are really good at, which is reading. And can they help us to read across systems and across patients to identify patterns we couldn't see before? Well, you've both given us so much to consider as we go forward in our day-to-day practice. So thank you very much for all of that really great information. We want to wrap with a sort of more fun question that's become our vibe, hopefully, in these podcasts. So what are you both currently reading or listening to, including podcasts, 
that is either helps you contextualize all of this great information or helps you unwind and totally take your mind off things at the end of the day. Weston, why don't you start? So I'm going to go with something that's on my listening stand, and that is the LISC podcast or the Long Island Serial Killer podcast. And I think it's really a fascinating story because it's a story of kind of the girls who are victims and impacted as well as scientific advancements. The two hosts of the podcast go into really great depth about the girls and what happened to them and their history. And I think it really reveals, it provides important stories about their families and also about human biases and delays in what caused us to perhaps not pay as much attention as we should have. And also for a data nerd like me, it has a lot of details about advancements in genetic family trees and how we're leveraging new genetics data to create family trees to identify perpetrators as well as really cool data about geospatial mapping and cell phone data to track and identify people. So I also really like it because we have a lot to learn from other disciplines and they do a great job of showing how some of the advancements in technology have been applied in other areas. So I'll admit I have a book on my nightstand that I started reading, but then fell asleep, but it's actually called Why We Sleep. And my mom sent it to me because she thinks I don't sleep enough. But in the introduction, the author actually talks about if you fall asleep reading that, he won't be mad. And it's really about why the human body needs sleep to function. And it's a really interesting book as far as I've read. But what I've heard more of is more on my listening stand. Um, Boston traffic is known to be horrible. And I experienced that regularly. So I have a good hour and a half usually to listen to books. And the most recent ones I've listened to are Drive, which is a really interesting book about what motivates people. It's by Daniel Pink. And I don't think it's very new. I was just kind of recommended by a friend to listen to it. It's really interesting about what motivates individuals. And I don't know how exactly it applies to anything that I'm doing, except I've been thinking about infection prevention and coming out of the pandemic, how exhausted our teams are and what can be motivating and exciting about the work that we have to do. And so listening to this book has really given me ways to think about how we organize our work, trying to bring the importance of like mastery of your field, about feeling like you're contributing to the field and bring that a lot of what we have to do is sometimes can feel not inspired. But in fact, if you reframe things, you can feel very inspired by the work that we do every day. And so actually, I would recommend that book, which I got through start to finish, thanks to Boston Traffic, because it really does make you think about our work is very different than, say, work 40 years ago. It relies on a lot of creativity, a lot of working with different sorts of role groups. And so the inspired sort of work that you can do, the innovation that you can do can really accelerate the advancement of the field and also make there be joy in work. And coming out of the pandemic, I think that that is a very good, not antidote, but it's a good idea to focus on those sorts of things as well. Wonderful. Drs. Erica Shinoy and Weston Branch Elliman, thank you so much for joining us today on the ASHI podcast, where we have explored their three-part series of articles, fully available open access on the ASHI website on artificial intelligence and informatics and epidemiology, where they call for the right solutions to the right problems, both in infection prevention and medicine. They also highlight the limitations of data in, in the electronic health record or the EMR. They identify outliers in situations as a, as a potential implementation or use of, of big data and informatics. 
really also explored the idea of using the EHR to grow and expand as part of the learning hospital healthcare system. They also ask us to think about the end user when we're looking at electronic solutions to our infection control and day-to-day -day problems. And last but not least, I think I heard them say, don't get distracted by shiny objects. Very important take-home message. We really enjoyed this podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Priya Nori, for your collaboration here. And thank you all for spending time with us on the ASHI podcast. We look forward to having you back soon, not only to listen to the podcast, but as future contributors to the field. Thank you.